0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air, I'm Don Marsh. Today we talk about the kind of rhetoric, political and otherwise, we're being exposed to in this day and age. When you hear the expression, political rhetoric, what do you think? Is there a tendency to dismiss it? Joining me in studio to discuss the status of rhetoric are Lauren Obermark, Assistant Professor of English and Rhetoric at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, Associate Professor Paul Lynch teaches in the English department, and is Writing Program Coordinator at St. Louis University. Thank you both for being with us.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you, Don.
0: I guess I'll have to watch my words with you guys here today. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, let me begin with you. In as much as we're talking about words and the use of them, how do you define rhetoric?
2: For me, rhetoric, I think I've gotten to the point where I want to be really big and inclusive with the definition. I feel like that's kind of controversial sometimes. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, Paul. i will be interested to hear what you think. But I, like, you'll hear a lot of times people say kind of in a pejorative way, it's all rhetoric. Um, and I sort of agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I think mm-hmm. rhetoric is all around us. I think about it when I get dressed in the morning. I think about it when I'm trying to get my kid to go to school. Um, I think about it in every article I write, in every class I teach, from the arrangement of the room to the way I design, you know, an essay assignment I'm asking students to write. So I really do think it's everywhere, and I certainly think about it a lot more and in different ways when I use social media, the images I use, um, the podcasts I might listen to. So I'm really comfortable thinking about rhetoric as just about everything that communicates with us. So anything communicative for me is rhetorical.
1: Right, Paul, what's your thought? I would agree with everything Lauren just said. The, the usual definition is that rhetoric is the art of persuasion. That's sort of the yeah. shorthand definition that most people will be familiar with. And usually that's referring to language, but I agree with Lauren that I think more and more we, we can think of the ways, not only language, but images, sound, you know, we're here on the radio today. Uh, music, other kinds of material objects, arrangements of rooms can be persuasive or can induce cooperation among people, and and so the, I would agree with Lauren that the, the expansive definition encompasses the full range of what rhetoric does. But how and why has it become pejorative? It's a long story. I mean, e- even from its earliest emergence in in the West, in in ancient Greece, it had its critics right from the start. You know, Plato was probably the most famous of them, and and uh, and is credited with coining the, the term rhetoric right, mm-hmm. a, as a pejorative. So from mm-hmm. its earliest days, it had its critics. And, and in the current climate, I think it's because we're inheritors in the Enlightenment. And, and rhetoric didn't fare so well in the Enlightenment. With the desire to have discourse be precise and predictable, especially with the emergence of modern science, the ornamentation of rhetoric became suspect. And so that's why I think you, you'll you hear people say, let's just cut all through the rhetoric here. I just want plain talk, right? Mm-hmm. Just give it to me straight and let's, let's push the rhetoric away, um, which I think is a, is a false dichotomy as Lauren indicated. That square with your thinking, Lauren?
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that there is so much we take from you know ancient philosophers. Like a lot of times we go with uh, Aristotle's definition, thinking about rhetoric as all the available means of persuasion. That's kind of the most commonly cited one. And I love that definition in a lot of ways because it is really big, right? So Mm -hmm. even when, you know, with Aristotle, he was like, I'm pretty comfortable with thinking about all the available means of persuasion. But really, he was talking about oratory. Right. (laughs) And really, he was talking about men doing great speeches. Um, So there's some inclusive aspects of it. And there's also some exclusive aspects Mm -hmm. of it, too. But I really, um, I think that then, yeah, through the years, it just kind of, it's always had its ups and downs. Like rhetoric has never just been, celebrated by everyone. People were always worried about it. I mean, Plato, my favorite part about Plato, which I think is fun, because Plato really is kind of fun, Hmm. believe it or not. He has this moment. Yeah, Yeah. but I like, he was so worried about people writing. He was really freaked out about the idea of people writing down their speeches, because he was like, oh, it's going to destroy the art of memory. We're destroying Mm -hmm. our memories. And we see these sort of concerns every era just emerge in different ways, the way we're worried about people texting now, destroying the English language. Well, people have been worried about you know, all these rhetorical elements since, um, you know, since the ancient, since the ancient folks.
0: I I, I don't think and have not thought, and it's probably my fault for not thinking this way, of it in terms of persuasion. Mm. Um, I mean, and that is one of the clear definitions of it. Uh, Could you just elaborate, Lauren, on that as to what we mean by the persuasive aspect of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really this classical definition, right, that um, tries to acknowledge that Rhetoric, and I think this is really important when we think about why rhetoric remains important in the 21st century, but trying to get people to Come to some place of agreement, right? To find some. We hear calls for common ground, for instance. um, You know, we might not have the exact same thought on something, but maybe I can, you know, persuade you to kind of hear me out a little bit. Um, So I do think that that definition of persuasion is really core. At the same time, I think we have to ask, like, what exactly does it mean to persuade Mm -hmm. someone, too? Because I think I have lots of really good conversations, for instance, with someone who, like, you know, a family member who doesn't agree with me about a political issue. I don't know that I fully persuade them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I think maybe we learn more from talking to each other. So I think that um, the persuasion piece is really important, but increasingly I think we have to kind of expand our minds about what counts as persuasion. Cause I think it's fairly rare to like have a conversation in which someone says like, oh, now that we talked over why we voted for that person, I agree and I should have voted for that person too, like in the political sphere. But, you know, we can still come to sort of this, some people call it like an invitation to understanding. That's kind of like a feminist rhetoric imperative. So maybe, you know, persuasion is not win or lose, Maybe we're just trying to learn, trying to understand.
0: Has political rhetoric, Paul,
1: do you think uh, caused a lot of this pejorative feeling? Well, there's always been suspicion of political rhetoric. Um, And I think Warren alludes to it a little bit that people are always a little bit worried about, in fact, about being persuaded. And by that, I think they're worried about being somehow taken in or manipulated. And I think that there's this implicit idea, when people complain about political rhetoric, again, why can't we just get rid of all this political rhetoric and just just tell me what the facts are? There's this idea that if we just had the right information or knowledge, then the path would be laid out before us, right? And there'd be no choice to to make. And to kind of go back to what Lauren was saying a second ago, I agree that very rarely, especially in political terms, do you have the experience of having two people argue and one saying, well, I've just completely Mm -hmm. changed my mind, right, that happens. Right, but it's usually a much slower and gradual process to, to get to a meeting of the minds. But I think rhetoric is is an art of trying to discern what our choices are in a in a practical situation when there isn't a perfect right answer available. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking driving in that the, our entire community right now is starting to liberate the idea of reunification between the city and the county. And I am no expert in, in any of the issues and the many issues that will play in there. But it's a rhetorical situation in so far as there is no clear right choice. There is no rule book we can go to to say, well, that's the obvious answer. We're Mm -hmm. we're going to have to persuade each other, deliberate, argue, go back and forth. And whatever choice the region makes will, will be a choice that entails always the risk that it was the wrong choice. But if rhetoric is words,
0: words are words after all, it seems to me that the problem would lie if there is a problem with the person using those words.
2: I do think, and I mean, that's um, when I think about going back to just rhetoric as persuasion or Paul said argument here, which reminds me of another sort of common definition of argument of rhetoric as argument. It's persuasion. It's Mm -hmm. argument, which then makes people a little nervous because nobody wants to argue like it sounds unpleasant. It sounds discomforting. Um, But I think what I keep in mind there with like that, you know, if it's just words, um, but that there's all these different ways, you know, rhetoric is just about words in some ways or symbols or however you want to think about it. Um, and it does have to do with people using it. And so that does get us to like the fact that rhetoric is, yes, this like outward way of talking about something, but it depends who's telling it to you. And rhetoric addresses that, too. It also you know it depends what kind of I think about, like something like this, you know, the city county merger. Um, maybe I'm going to tell you a story about my experience, you know. With policing or something, and that might be part of how I'm trying to persuade you to think about this merger. But also, maybe I'm going to present you with a bunch of data about how you know how how debt works. Um, so there's all these different, all those pieces are also part of rhetoric. It's the words that I'm using, the story I'm telling, but also why I'm choosing to use a personal anecdote or why I'm choosing to rely on some like large body of evidence or data that that pre-exists what I'm saying, um, or just, you know, situating who I am, you know, as a woman, how does this affect me, or is, you know, something like that, um, is all still part, that's sort of the, it's all rhetoric, um, which right. I think is a good thing. It's good when it's all rhetoric.
0: <laughs> An- another element, Paul, it seemed to me, would be tone. Yes. That, that would be
1: uh, crucial in and, and understanding and interpreting and trying to figure it out. That's right. I, I mean, for all the sort of negative connotation of persuasion, right, the idea I don't want to be persuaded or taken in somehow. Um, tone matters because I think it's a way and rhetoric is a way or being rhetorically aware, which is what I think I hear Lauren saying, that by saying it's all rhetoric, we become aware that 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 tone matters, that context matters, The situation matters. Um, there's an example I always go back to. If, you're, if your roommate's p- playing the radio too loud, you can politely ask them to turn turn it down and appeal to their, you know, sense of, of uh, courtesy. Or you can walk into the room and throw the radio out the window, right? Both of those are effective. They will get the job done. One of them has a, obviously a different tone than the other. One preserves the relationship even at a moment of, of potential conflict. And I think... To be rhetorical is to read a situation and a person and a context and say, at this moment, this is the way I should approach this. Because another way might might damage the long-term relationship, even if it gets the job done. Lauren, how does social media change this, or, or does it change it?
2: I do think it absolutely changes that I think it's hard to talk about rhetoric today without thinking about social media Um, and context is a huge piece of rhetoric so we're in a context right now where people are communicating extremely fast and in all these varied forms which is is very exciting but also kind of intimidating especially if we don't want to engage with every social media platform in existence Um, but I think one thing that we're talking you were talking about tone um, and in some ways I think that social media really Draws our attention to tone, and when we think that tone is right or wrong, and I kind—I of, would like put those terms in quotes. If the, if tone can necessarily be right or wrong, but I think what people mostly notice about the ways people rhetorically, what I would think of as like rhetorically engaging on social media, is. People do want to tone police each other. They want to say, you're getting too angry or you're, um, you know, you're not giving me any evidence. And I think we often see social media as a place where we see a lot of division. And that might be true. Like maybe we see some really extreme perspectives. Um, But at the same time, I think social media kind of opens us up to the fact that there are all these different perspectives out there. And we might not agree with them. We might not agree with how they're being communicated at that time. But I also think that there's value there. I think that there's like a lot of, um, I've thought a lot about the fact that like anger is often a valid and extremely important rhetorical Mm. strategy. We want to dismiss it, but sometimes people need to get really angry and let it out on social media or elsewhere, even if it's not necessarily going to persuade you. So I think social media has really made me pay attention to what it means to argue or to take a certain tone and what would be the implications of, of tone policing someone on social media too.
0: Paul, well, you can still shout at somebody on social media. Just do everything in uppercase, and there you go. Yes. Uh, but there is also another element here, and that is you're not face to face. That's right. You know, you're really doing it not quite anonymously, but you don't have to suffer the interpersonal uh, relationship that way.
1: That's right. I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big user of social media. So to refer to Lauren on this, I'm a, uh, a long way to go before he described me as a luddite. But I would say, even using email, it it's sometimes easier to, um, I've found, to uh, maybe lose one's temper a little bit on email because you're not face-to-face. I think it's hard to do when you're actually in a room with a person. At the same time, that distance can also make you consider your words more precisely, the distance of writing, to say, how am I going to reach a certain person in a certain way? Again, this is the rhetorician's uh, uh, motto. I think it depends on the situation. It depends on the context, what I'm trying to get done, and whom I'm speaking to and what's been going on in the given situation. Want to add to that, Lauren? Before we take a break,
2: I think the only thing that I would want to add about social media is like love it or hate it. It's it's pretty much here. It's interesting because if we think about it, like politically, Barack Obama was actually the first pre- the first social media president. He was, the, which doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah. Um, but now we have a president who's also like using social media as his like front line of communication. Mm-hmm. So even if you hate what you're seeing, I feel like sort of the imperative of my work as someone who studies rhetoric is I have to look at it. Right. I have to look at what inspires me, and I also have to look at what might really disturb me sometimes and i do see i do i collect a lot of those moments from social media as a rhetorician i kind of archive those moments and think about what they mean for the modern state of communication
0: yeah. well we'd have to take that break now Let's we'll uh, take that now and come back and continue our conversation on rhetoric how it's changed and changing and we'll do that in just a moment this is st louis on the air on st louis public radio 90.7 kwmu We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise, examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues. Hammond.institute. And welcome back as we resume our conversation on the issue of Rhetoric with Lauren Obermark, Assistant Professor of English and Rhetoric at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and Associate Professor Paul Lynch teaches in the English Department and is the Writing Program Coordinator at St. Louis University. We have uh, one of our listeners, Joe, has has, uh, sent in a question on Facebook, and he says, uh, he asks, Is there a concept within Rhetoric that you wish could be revived for the general public? Lauren?
2: I think for me, this isn't a concept that's just within rhetoric, but it kind of gets back to like the historical um, imperative of rhetoric. I really, whenever I teach rhetoric, which is pretty much every class I teach, I always want to frame it first as being about civic engagement that, um, you know, rhetoric is how we engage as citizens with each other, how we listen to each other, how we speak to and about one another. So to me, I think um, that is kind of the way I want to like reclaim rhetoric. I want to say it's first and most importantly about civic engagement. Um, We we always want to keep that close to our hearts, I think, when we're talking about rhetoric.
1: Paul, a thought? I would say style um, or at least some resistance to, I think, what our culture's default position of style versus substance is. We tend to say again cut through the style and get to the substance but rhetoric as an art has always had a very very um mm-hmm. been very very self-aware of the style of discourse and i think that's another way of talking about approaches to particular audiences in particular situations i want to re-embrace style mm-hmm. well style is a word
0: going back to social media now mm-hmm. that uh, is, is certainly changing because now mm-hmm. we're talking in uh, in symbols. We're using emojis, and we're using shorthand, and we're using initials instead of words. It's it's changing everything. And Lauren, what do you think about that, and how is how is that changing everything?
2: I think that it is changing everything because, I mean, it's reminding us that a lot of different things can be writing. So I'm kind of, I lean towards the side of, though I'm like, most people are like, oh, you're an English professor. I need to watch my grammar. I should spell everything right. correctly. But I often and I often say, like, I think English professors tend to be the ones that are pretty excited about changes in language. So I feel kind of excited about what social media brings to the table, in part because, um, I mean, research indicates that especially young people are writing, are writing in whatever form that might take. But they're you know putting text into um, into the world in more and more now than they ever you know than they ever have historically. So I think we want to say like, oh, nobody's writing anymore. Language is falling apart. Um, But I think that it's more complex than that, Um, and I'm excited about the possibilities that social media opens up for especially young people to play around with what it means to communicate, Um, and I love emoji, and I love sort of trying to like decipher text speak. I think even if I don't, even if I kind of know I'm not the audience for it, or I'm too old for it, or I don't, you know, Um, but I think it's, I think again, it kind of makes rhetoric more inclusive and gives more people a chance to play around with what their style may be, and I, I welcome that.
0: But Paul is this linguistic
1: shorthand, which is my my term right. for it, is that really writing? I think so, Don. I think I mean writing has as Lauren indicated earlier has changed um, since it first emerged. It's just a new, to go back to the phrase we've been using, it's a new set of available means of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's appropriate for some situations and not for some others. You know, I, I just read yesterday the, the final column of John Dingle, the congressman who, who passed away last week, served for 60 years, and was a, a great user of Twitter, a hilarious mm-hmm. Twitterer, I don't know what the er the mm-hmm. is there. Um, and wrote about his, his use of social media saying it is perfectly appropriate for certain kinds of communications at certain points. But in these final words that he dictated to his wife on his deathbed, he was extremely eloquent in all the traditional ways. He sounded like the statesman that he was. I think proving that that rhetoric again is situational and and the fact that we can in- use social media in these new ways doesn't necessarily mean that the old ways will fall apart. It just means there are new possibilities available to us.
2: Yeah, I think that's, and it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? You don't right. have to just be like a great orator, but you can also, you can do that and be really great at like right. knowing the emoji to use and the text to your, right. your friends. Um, the other thing I would say that thinking about somehow, I don't know, you spun me off thinking about this, Paul, that... The thing the other thing about social media that can be exciting or about sort of just internet communication more broadly cuz I'm kind of thinking about blogs blogs here in particular but there's lots of good like activist work that happens there particularly from communities that might not like be able, like I do a lot of work um, in a field called disability studies, thinking about how people with disabilities communicate, how we even define disability and like blogging for instance, um, or building community on social media might open up access, communicative access in a way to like, you know, build a world that you didn't have access to before if you were a person with a disability, right? So I think those kind of openings that the internet provides just, they can't be overlooked.
0: A means of dealing with
1: things that can make you feel uncomfortable right? otherwise. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. right. And it's not to say that, the, that these technologies don't have their downsides. I mean, to go back to Plato's concerns about writing and the way it might alter memory. In a way, he was right, right? We did start writing. Does It does become a technology by which we can offload memory in a way. Twitter, I mean, we can speak, I think, at length of the ways that Twitter can encourage a kind of negative um uh, uh, sort of antagonistic discourse, right? Um, it's all the all the more reason why we have to think about these rhetorically and think about the way we educate students, especially in in situations and when it's best to to use one available means, when it's best to use another one.
0: The uh, we're all obviously familiar with the president using Twitter and the right. uh, effect that uh, it has for better or for worse, depending right. on your political right. point of view. But it was suggested, Paul, that I ask you about uh, the Pope and
1: and his his role in all of this. And there is a role, right? So I've written a lot about uh, Pope Francis as a rhetorician, and he is also a very adept um, media, modern media user, um, and I think very stylistically uh, engaged. Um, When he sort of came into office, the first thing he did, stepping out on the balcony of the Vatican, was simply say, "Good evening." And then he sort of broke protocol by asking the assembled people to pray over him rather than having him bless them, which would have been the traditional expectation. So right from the start, his style was very different. Um, what's interesting about it, I think, is that for many in, in the Catholic Church, at least, that I'm familiar with, people were very alarmed by this, thinking that this um, pretended some sea change in, in the church's direction, when really it was a matter of a different sort of style, maybe a, maybe a, a lighter touch or a more uh, familiar kind of approach uh, than his predecessors. Um, but again, people can only conceive of that as as a break with the past because we have no discourse for for style. We think a change in style must mean that everything else has changed as well. And that's not necessarily true. Can, uh, Lauren, can you think of other examples of 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 people and the use
0: of this new uh, media, if you will, to uh, to communicate?
2: Well, I'm thinking a little bit about um, the State of the Union address right now. And particularly, I just was reading over um, Stacey Abrams' Abrams response, the Democratic response to the State Mm -hmm. of the Union address. And I was like... That's exactly the kind of stuff that I, I want to look at because it does make me feel really inspired about rhetoric. Um, particularly, I was I loved that I could read this like political transcript of it that had all these like little fact checking mechanisms in right. it, and like it mm-hmm. gave political commentary right alongside her, her the actual transcript of her speech at the same time. I could watch her speech, and I was like, I love that I can access this in so many different ways. It allows me to really sit with it and think about um, what she's doing. So I felt like um, I just feel like that kind of opens up different ways for me to receive rhetoric as well as for people to participate in rhetoric. And that, um, yeah, that's part of why I love it.
0: Is music rhetoric?
2: Yes, I think so. I was actually just, um, I mean, I'm definitely, and particularly, I'm sure you could speak to this you Paul, when you teach, like when I teach first year writing classes, Um, at UMSL to students who are, you know, kind of the 18 to 22 demographic. They get, they're get they always really drawn to wanting to talk about song lyrics or, or music videos. And I'm like, that makes complete sense to me. But I was just thinking, um, you know, just last night, Michelle Obama made like a surprise appearance at the Grammys. And I'm like, we really can't separate politics and this like popular <laughs> culture event. And she particularly said something like, we won't get it quite right and everyone was like applauding so much you could barely hear her but she was kind of like music is about telling our stories you know and so people are always directly and it's so important the storytelling has been important to me since i was like on the south side up until the last 10 years and empowering women i was like i love this so i don't know that yeah i think you can't separate music or a lot of kind of pop culture stuff that we'd like to dismiss i don't think you can separate that from the rhetorical realm
1: i think that's right i mean music certainly has rhetorical effects and you know we're just a few days away from valentine's day And and I think people uh, around the nation will be choosing music carefully on the 14th, what music Mm -hmm. to listen to over dinner. And insofar as they're making a choice, whether or not they're thinking this is rhetorical, they're making what I think we would recognize as a rhetorical choice, something appropriate for the moment, appropriate for the person, appropriate for the situation. Well, today's music is certainly changing things. I think for those of us who are a little bit older, you
0: know, we find it hard to understand sometimes. But uh, it's the most popular hip-hop, most popular genre in the world. It's just taken over the world. Mm -hmm. We have uh, Rachel, one of our Facebook uh, friends, uh, sent us a link to a new journal of communication study that has to do with political rhetoric. The study indicates that the closure of local newspapers leads to more straight-ticket voting and political polarization, as well as less influence with their state national elected officials. Why does that ring a, any kind of a bell with you?
2: I don't know the particular study, but yeah. that sounds, I mean, the, it was like the closure of newspapers. Is yeah. that what it's like? Of local newspapers. Of local newspapers. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense if we think about, you know, those newspapers just being on, you know, kind of the front lines of communication. And sometimes I do think Um, that we have access to all this news in other formats, sometimes it doesn't feel as accessible. Like I even know as someone, I'm pretty like deeply embedded in the internet every day, but sometimes I'm like, I need to shut off from all of this. So I could see how if you were a person that the the daily newspaper was kind of how you did it, that would definitely affect how you would vote um, or even if you wanted to get out there and vote.
0: We have to wind this down, but Paul,
1: I'll ask you and then Lauren. Sure. Where is all of this taking us? Where are we going with this? Well, over the last 60 years, I mean, for a long time, rhetoric had sort of fallen out of the university curriculum entirely and had been really reduced to maybe one of two first-year courses, maybe a first-year writing course, the kind of course Lauren and I both teach, and maybe a first-year speech communication course. Since at least the 1960s, there's been an an attempt by professors in both English and communication departments, at the very least, and among others, to revive the study of rhetoric um, and to make it reestablish it as part of the curriculum. Uh, That's near and dear to my heart. I work at SLU, as a Jesuit institution. Of course, the Jesuits um, made perfect eloquence the centerpiece of their curriculum from the start. Their actual phrase was eloquentia perfecta. Perfect eloquence was the purpose of what they thought a liberal arts education should do. And so I think where we're headed is, I hope, an ongoing attempt to revive rhetoric and get it back to the the heart of any liberal arts curriculum, whether a Jesuit school or not. Mm
2: Yeah, I agree. Particularly in, in university contexts, really trying to center just like this humanistic study a little bit more of rhetoric and of literary studies as well. Being in the English department, I think about that a lot. So I do think I hope we can keep rhetoric really centered in the curriculum because um, people in higher education obviously like to talk about job preparation and marketability of your degree. I think all of that's really important. Obviously, you know, I want I don't want students to be paying for an education that they don't feel like it's gonna gonna help them in the future. But I actually think rhetoric is like obvious a huge part of that. I tell students it's like like how you figure out how to put together a resume. Um, it's right. also figure out, figuring out how to have a, like an awkward conversation with a superior and things like that. So I think rhetoric can really... Help us engage civically, yes, but also help us engage professionally. And so I think that's a huge piece. And also, I just want to look at rhetoric happening on the ground. There's so much rhetorical, important rhetorical work happening in activist movements. Um, I've done a lot of work um, talking to people about Black Lives Matter. And I think that that's really like, like those kind of movements teach us a lot about rhetoric. So I want to pay attention to like the history of rhetoric, but also how it's happening right now.
0: Well, uh, the the, uh, 2020 political season has already started, so we'll be exposed to a lot of that rhetoric over the course of the next uh, many months. I want to thank you both so much for being with us. Lauren Obenmark, thank you for being with us from the University of Missouri-St. Louis and Paul Lynch of St. Louis University. Great to talk to you. Interesting subject indeed. Thank you. Thank you you for having us. Thank you, Don. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.